Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. There's a lot of reasons to talk to Alanis Morissette right now. It is, believe it or not, the 25th anniversary of Jagged Little Pill. She's also about to release her first album in eight years, which is called Such Pretty Forks in the Road, and it's a really wrenching, powerful album. She's supposed to tour for the 25th anniversary of Jagged Little Pill, and the hit musical based on that album was also supposed to still be on Broadway. But as with a lot of plans we've all had, the pandemic changed all that. When I caught up with Alanis a few weeks ago, we talked about making her new album, what she's been doing for the intervening eight years, becoming a mother was a big part of that, what it was like to work on the Broadway show, and she also looked back on the creation of Jagged Little Pill in the first place, and even remembered her Canadian pop star years which preceded that album. So here's my full conversation with Lilanis Morissette. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, these are strange times. <laughs> it's hard for everyone in different ways. How, how are you holding up? You know, it depends when you catch me. I have my nightly panic attacks mm. that, I've, that I've grown to anticipate and um, actually kind of ride them out, interestingly enough. It's turned into kind of somatic somatic exploration every night of oh here you know I, I warn my husband I'm like oh here it comes <laughs> he's always offering to help but um sometimes you just got to go into the abyss alone you know yeah I mean um and and really it's just like an exercise now deep breathing and noticing all the sensation through it like a good trauma recovery patient um but then, you know and then I'm also wildly inspired I can't stop writing and then the next moment, you know, there's a bunch of deadlines for stuff and I, I'm, I'm immobilized. So my theory is that we're all in some version of fight, flight, freeze, collapse. You can't even be intend and befriend because there's no way to influence what's going on. And so, you know, tend and befriend is when you think you can kind of talk your way out of something mm. or friendify your way out of it, you know. But I think we're all in some version of freeze which, you know, basically has us be kind of chronically stressed out in a way that accumulates and can create its own trauma if it's extended for too long. And America's never been that great at living in the, living in the question. Yeah. <laughs> it's not our strong suit to live in the question mark. And it's hard as an animal. You know, we want concretization. We want clarity. We want to know what's happening, you know. So to live in, the, uh, in that sort of floating amorphous thing for us collectively is, is a challenge for us as animals, you know. Yeah, your album "Such Pretty Forks in the Road," which I am have been lucky enough to hear, but uh, we'll see if the people reading this, the people hearing this, will will be lucky enough to have heard the whole thing. But I think it's great. I think it's, I was really moved by it, and it feels. I hope people can hear it soon because it it feels. I've been saying this about a, a few other things, but it it feels pretty appropriate to the moment in, in ways, you know. Yeah, I know. It was supposed to come out May first, and I I thought. It- you know, leading up throughout April, leading up to May 1st, I just thought this just intuitively doesn't feel right to be putting a record out about one woman's crisis when we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know? So I got it 50-50, depending upon which friend I, I told that information to. Some of them would say, yeah, 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 wait, please. we can't, I can't take anymore. <laughs> and then other friends saying the total opposite, saying, are you kidding me? I exactly want to lose myself in, in your story and in your words. You know? So it's coming out July 31st. Oh, great. Okay, good. Yeah, and we're finished, and I'm so in love with it. But um, yeah, just July 31st felt really fine because we're actually going to be doing CDs and LPs, old school. Yeah, combined with, of course, it being available online wherever. So, so in order for in the international consideration, July 31st is the way, and I can wait. Yeah, everything got. I mean, this is true of everyone, but it's true of everyone, and it's true of everyone individually, which is you had 
you had a great Broadway show on. You had this big tour planned. You still get to have the album out, but all of this was yanked from under you. And, and how have you kind of dealt with that? Because I'm sure there's also was dealing with that at the moment and then the, the waves afterwards of grappling with all that change. Yeah, waves is the exact word. You know, it's, it's the classic stages of grief. It's mm. like shock, denial, bargaining, like, you know, can we do, so- <laughs> can we do something? And then, um, and then what's the next one? The next one's anger. I didn't really... Although my husband would say I did, um, didn't, I don't remember anger to be honest. Um, and then, um, and then sadness and depression. I had a little dose of that the other day. I did an interview, and right after, not because of the interview, but there's something about it. Just made it really real that we can't right now. We can't go on tour or be anywhere. So I got a little bummed out. And then uh, acceptance. And there, you know, at first it seems linear those stages, but they kind of circle back and depends when you catch us. But the new, I mean, the, what the, what's being touted as the new stage of grief that's been forgotten is the anxiety one. Mm. It's almost like the, the undercurrent to all the stages of, of grieving and shock and denial and all of those fun ones. Yeah, I think I've been in that one for a while. So, <laughs> And you know what? I keep telling my friends and loved ones, like, hey, whatever you need to do, man, it's, <laughs> it's a very strange time for all of us. I mean, on losing the plot, you sing about insomnia. Is that something that's been a thing for you? Yeah, I'm high. My temperament's wildly sensitive. So, I mean, someone can be thinking something and I'm up. Hmm. You know, especially with um, the almost eight month old, I nurse all night long. So, I'm up there. And then I'm, and, and in general, postpartum activity, as I call it. Um, the first two times I had it was more sort of de- depressive symptoms. Yeah. And then this time around, Depression, you know, maybe 1% is depression. The rest is just anxiety and all the pictures and all the the horrifying parts of PPD. But, um, but yeah, sleep is scarce. And I sleep whenever I can, which is not a large amount of time, but enough to keep going. Yeah. Is it a lifelong thing or has it just been sort of post-children post, uh, insomnia? Uh, both. <laughs> yeah. It depends. I mean, here's what it is. If I haven't had any time with myself and I haven't checked in and I'm not grounded... There's no way I'm going to be sleeping. <laughs> the, the noises wake me and they go, come on, write about it or make that phone call or, well, not a phone call in the middle of the night unless there's a fellow insomniac. Um, but yeah, you know, whenever there's something left undone that is really important to me, I won't sleep. Is that also a creative time for you? Does it end up being when you write? It's the most creative time um, because everyone's sleeping. <laughs> and um, I can sort of take my mom hat off. I have, you know, one eye open and one ear on on children at all times. But at night, I can just really follow my nose and get into that expansive state of just being receptive to whatever's coming, whether it's a lyric or an idea or something to edit or artwork or design for something. I mean, that's when all the ideas come. And that's also when I kind of take care of my body. You know, all day long, I'm like twirling them and wrestling them. I have bruises all over my legs from like the best wrestling sessions. <laughs> and at night is when I'm like, okay, I'm, I feel 90. <laughs> Let's get on that bolster. You know, that's when I do all my, my physical care. Mm. At some point, you're going to have to sleep though. <laughs> to... Yeah. I'm sleeping right now. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> you also sing about letting uh, you use uh, superwoman as a verb, letting go of the idea of superwomaning, mm. and it, there seems to be a lot going on in, in that song. What, what's what is that all about for you? Oh, it's I, it was my last days in Los Angeles. I, I lived in Los Angeles for almost twenty five years, and I just remember we sort of progressively moved farther away. We spent some time in Ojai. We lived in in Malibu for three years on the beach. So just like slowly extricating, you know, of course, I'm still actively involved in the art and touring and 
that part I'll do until I'm dead. And after I'll probably channel through some poor unwitting, <laughs> unwitting 16 year old. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, that, that song was written right as I was just Hollywood. I was just really disillusioned with Hollywood. Like a, if a woman's over 25, what does that mean for her? And for her meaning me and then priorities too. Like, okay, I'm, I'm a high functioning mom, attachment mom. We unschool, we're going on tour finances, life, charity, service, taking, supposedly taking care of yourself, and somewhere in there trying to be a married person. <laughs> so losing the plot was just like, I'm out of my tree. I wrote it when I had postpartum depression after my daughter Onyx was born. So it was my best attempt at trying to capture, you know, my whole life, my whole, I've, I've relied on my cognitive, on my intellectual, just to, you know, that was my big sword or shield, you know. And so sure. with PBD, it kind of knocks it out it's so much more vulnerable for me because I don't have access to what I used to have access to. I can't track as well. And I'm constantly apologizing. Like, I'm sorry, what were you saying? Mm. It was embarrassing at first. And now I'm just like, Hey, it's part, it's part of the postpartum <laughs> experience. Apologize in advance. I mean, you are a very cerebral artist and probably person as well. Right? Like you're incredibly verbal. You use words that most songwriters don't use in songs. You know, it's just, it, it seems so key to the way you operate, I would say. Yeah, I like words. I feel like words are paint, you know, and that, you know, I, I still have malapropisms. I use words that don't exist. I misspell them or I use the Commonwealth spelling or I don't actually care. And yet I love the linguistic gift. You know, it's, it's like paint. It's like when you're, when I'm saying something, what are the 14 different ways I can say one thing? You know, it's a challenge, but when it does come time to write the lyrics, the music and the lyrics are written at the same time. So Interestingly enough, that's that's when I do shut my neofrontal cortex off, <laughs> shut it off, and then I just see what comes. And it's such a fun thing to do songwriting because I don't even know what's coming. I'll listen to the song the next day and not really remember having written it. Mm. It's funny because with uh, Jagged Little Pill, the musical uh, being so much in the forefront of our minds, and the fact that we're going to do a tour, and then you, with this album, it it helps make me feel like these albums are in conversation with each other, whether they are or not. So I was, I had both kind of in my head and in addition to all the great music in between, but it was interesting for me to think of it that way. I don't know if you've ever thought about that since you were also kind of working on both at once in ways. Working, given the musical. Oh, you mean talking the musical and, and the... Yeah, yeah, sort of the, the music from, the, you know, the both the original album and the musical and this album kind of... Yeah, they're all, they're all cousins. Yeah. And they all have similar value systems and they're all... You know, some of them are stronger than others in terms of like, oh, this one's more resilient right now. Let's talk about mm. But they're all coming from this place of what's what's dwelling in my unconscious that I haven't communicated directly. I mean, there was a point in time where songwriting was my escape. It was my way to address something without having to deal with the terror of intimacy and the terror of having to sit across from a human being and actually have that conversation. So now, I mean, my goal over the last 10 years at least has been to to take some of the directness that I write in my songs and bring that to my relationships, especially when it's really scary. Mm. Is any of that relate to the kind of weight between albums? Have you, have you been bringing some of your artistic energy to life instead? Is that a, a thing? I think it's the straight up having three children. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, um, writing the records, I kind of write whatever I can. And, you know, we had a bunch of miscarriages and some false starts and mm, a lot of grieving. Sorry. And thanks. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's all it's all in the record without without sometimes nailing it on the head verbally, but um, or lyrically. But um, so yeah, I mean, 
the amount of things that I was doing during that time may not, it just wasn't public, you know, but designing a house, we moved after having lived in one house for 20 some odd years, moved, designed things, built, decorated, you know, I love, I love knocking down walls, literally, figuratively. So (laughs) I'm always like, yeah, we don't need that wall. My husband's like, oh, another wall is going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what, you know, if fans get you know, impatient or whatever, I think they forget about the life being lived and how much that can take of, of, a, of a person's energy. You know, it's not, you're not obligated to be delivering an album every year. You know, it's not, uh, you didn't sign a contract with your fans, you know. To- no, I would love to provide it. I mean, my dream was always just, right, I mean, this may be what it becomes, right? It kind of is on the verge of it right now, but just putting a song out anytime you have a song. <laughs> yeah. Is my dream. But I also do love the album form and because it is a story. It's a collection of songs that really mark a time. And a lot of records I'll listen to 10 years later and just think, wow. Wow, I wish, I wish I'd heeded that wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't that. No, um, yeah, so I'm, not, I'm never worried about writer's block or is she going to stop. No, I'll, I'll be writing until, I'm, until I, I can't stand anymore. The stuff that you're writing now in your insomnia, is that songs or, for, or is it just writing or what what is it that you're um it's definitely songs i mean everything yeah. in my journal can kind of turn in can kind of transmute into a song really quickly and and you said something a few seconds ago that i really resonated with which is you know it takes 40 some years to live the experience and then it takes three and a half minutes to write it or it takes mm. 20 minutes to write it so the process of writing the songs because the lyrics and the music happen at the same time is a pretty accelerated experience the living of those experiences <laughs> It's years, you know? Mm. I mean, a, a couple things from the musical. I mean, you ought to know your, you know, I guess your fam- most famous song, it, 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 it ends up being transformed in this incredibly powerful way. Mm. One of my friends, who's a, a gay man, was saying that he loved the song, but he never thought about it as directly relating to him right. until he saw the musical, and it was so powerful for him. And I think a lot of people had that experience. And he, he asked me, asked you, what, you know, what was it like to see this song that you that you knew so well and your fans knew so well transformed into sort of this queer anthem, okay. this totally different thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what I loved about it was that there's a certain amount that I'll share about my personal story. My intention is not to, I love revenge fantasy, but I'm not like, yeah, seek revenge, you know? <laughs> and so the song was really written to get it out of my body because I'm, I'm such a Canadian imploder. <laughs> Anytime I can move it, whether it's through exercise or venting with my friends or writing songs, it's just really responsible of me to, <laughs> to get it out so that I stay healthy. Um, and then once the record is finished and I share it with people, it's not mine anymore. So I've heard so many different accounts of like, hey, this song helped me through my divorce or Alanis, I hate men too. And I'm like, mm, okay, <laughs> I forget it. Um, yeah, I just like hearing people's stories about it. And then for it to be at the centerpiece of Jagged Little Pill musical and the way Lauren just performs it and their relationship is, a, I think it's an extra 20 layers because you get to actually see the relationship that is causing so much pain in her versus mine, which you're not going to ever, you know, we're never going to really talk about it. So, so for me, it was, my, it was also my being able to sit in the audience and really take it in. And how devastated that song is, you know, because everyone, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people just think of the anger, which, you know, I live for anger, not the act, not the destructive acting out of anger, but I love anger. It moves worlds, you know, Mm. it helps me set boundaries and change things. But yeah, when I watched it, 
you want to know, and frankly, all of them, I just thought, wow, this is being brought to life on so many different levels. And it just warms my heart is my answer. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And I feel like you might have a fresher answer to this than most, again, given your like encounter with your 19-year-old artistic self, having worked on the musical. But have you thought about what you would say to yourself at 19? Oh, I would just express um, a desire to have a few more people around her. <laughs> it, was, mm. it was pretty lonely. And during that time, you know, every every festival I participated in, it was like 72 male bands and Alanis Morissette. <laughs> I was like, okay, because it, it got to a point where, you know, a lot of them didn't know what to do with me. Like, okay, we're not going to have sex with her. We're not going to date her. What do we do? You know, and <laughs> my answer was nothing. Just chat with me. Have a right. awful with me, you know? Um, so I tried making a lot of friends and it, it just didn't quite work out because it's such, it was such an unusual circumstance, a lot of movement. Fame is very confusing to some people. I leave a lot of room for people to be awkward at first. Mm -hmm. If we eventually can't get through it, it's, it's untenable as a friendship. There's so many different considerations to, to thrive as someone who's in the public eye and kind of isolated for it. That's another chapter somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So basically just try to be less lonely is, is your, your advice. To, yeah. yeah. Then let's, let's find some, find some friends. I mean, I have a little sadness when I say that even right now. Yeah. I tried. I don't know where they were. Um, you know, I had this bill of goods sold to me that I think the entire planet had sold to them too about fame, which is, Fame's going to solve all your problems. You're not going to be lonely. You're going to be loved up. And, um, you know, it, it, that's not what happened. Yeah. And uh, what, what do you think 19-year-old uh, Alanis would say to you now? She'd, she'd say, do you want to be my friend? Can <laughs> <laughs> we hang out for Christ's sake? <laughs> oh, leave me stranded. <laughs> she would have clung to my leg. <laughs> and that's true. Yeah, she's like, can we hang out then? <laughs> oh, man. You know, uh, ironic, the brilliant thing the musical does where it kind of incorporates the tiresome criticism of it into the performance. Right. I feel like if I were you, I'd find that really satisfying because it kind of just like knocks the nails into the coffin of that whole like joke or whatever. Yeah, until the next generation wants to kick my ass. <laughs> until the next, you know, onslaught of... Of shaming, um, yeah. I, first of all, uh, Brooke or Diablo Cody just nailed it. That that song was so not precious, and I didn't even want it on the record. And I remember a lot of people going, "Please, please, please, please." And I said, "Okay," but it wasn't. It wasn't an autobiographical song. Maybe the bridge was, mm. but it wasn't sort of mean. Nar the narrative wasn't born yet, if that makes sense. Um, that was one of the first songs we wrote, almost like a demo to get our whistles wet. Um, but people wound up really liking the melody and I just, I wasn't that precious about it. And um, I came to realize later that perhaps I should have been. Anyway, I think a lot of people have the shadow of, you know, I guess one of the things that is the scariest for us in terms of our sh collective shame is being stupid um, mm. or un uneducated or ignorant, you know? So I'm a, I'm a big fan and was very close with Debbie Ford, who's kind of the modern Jungian shadow work stuff. So I can wow. embrace that I'm stupid. I can embrace that I'm really brilliant. It just depends when you catch me. <laughs> I was thinking about uh, the line, uh, what it all comes down to is I haven't, figured it, uh, I haven't figured it out just yet. And it's like, I think one of the things about the new record that's so powerful is 
as someone who's exactly your age, literally, um, let the acknowledgement that even at this point that we may not have figured it out just yet. Yeah. And I think the spiritual running joke for me around that is that if I'm trying to figure it out on the level of ego, I'll never figure it out. And that was kind of my point. Like if I'm trying to figure this out by what I'm going to consume or who I'm going to meet or who I'm going to be married to or what I'm going to get or what it's going to look like, they'll always be this ache or this hunger, you know? And so for me, that's the spiritual, that's the spiritual food that I've been really looking at. There's a song I wrote um, called Would Not Come. Similar theme, like just, if I, if I keep thinking I'm going to find the answer, you know, that whole thing, if you try to, if you try to keep repeating on the same level, you can't graduate to some new, behavior or some new revelation or epiphany or anything. So I just kept trying to find an answer on the level that you can't find it on, right? So for me, it was like, okay, so I want to cultivate a spiritual practice. It was really hard for me to meditate for years because who wanted to be left alone with these thoughts? I didn't want stillness. I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's not so kind in there. Let's, let's see how I can distract myself. I don't know if that answers your question, but... no. I mean, this album is, a, among other things, a welcome reminder of the, the power of, of your singing and also the distinctiveness of your singing. It feels like on the style that you debuted on Jagged Little Pill, you've evolved a lot, but you're, the most distinctive thing you, you do with your voice was there. It was not, however, there on what I've heard of you know your previous, like your Canadian album. So had you ever sung like that before you developed that style for that album, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, the style, if I can even have any objectivity around it for me, is just very conversational. And I attempted to write that way as a teenager, but I was working with collaborators who were not at all interested in, I started doing the, the unthinkable, like not rhyming, <laughs> or writing things that were a little more obtuse or a little more... Um, complicated or you know a little more complexities and and i and they it was met with you know don't do that mm. and then i was dropped from mca and then i moved to los angeles because i wanted to move somewhere first of all i'd always been enamored with the idea of hollywood but i wanted to move somewhere where there there were no preconceived notions of me you know and then i did and i also quietly promised myself that i wouldn't stop until i was collaborating with someone who who, who could just hold what was happening whatever was coming out that they would just hold space, kind of mm. like plant for the most part, just wants water and sun, you know? <laughs> so sure. I just wanted to be in an environment that was non-judgmental, that wasn't patriarchal, that wasn't going to say, Hey, thanks Alanis for writing the song with me. You get 0. 0.0008 according to my calculator. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Okay. So <laughs> uh, yeah. But this sort of, for lack of a better term, like the, the full blown sort of Alanis whale, the high end of your voice where, it, where there's almost like a high harmonic to it, yeah. like that, that bit of your singing, did that just come out one day in the studio or, or how, where did that thing, the, the thing that is so amazing that you do, where did that come from? Uh, it's, it was always there. And, and I hear it in my son and my, both my son and my daughter. Wow. We have similar timbers. Like when my son, my son sings with me and harmonizes with me just while we're walking around and I'm the sound, the timber is exactly the same. He hits every, he's got like full Mariah range. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think it was always there. What I never wanted to do was to gratuitously do all the vocalization flippy flippies to impress <laughs> people. The most important thing, the priority number one and only really was the story being told. So if the story needed to be told in a alto octave and she doesn't get a chance to hit them high notes, then so be it. That's what the song wants, you know? So it's always the narrative and the, and the story first. 
and then the vocal fund comes and, and the range for me I, you know and I have to knock on wood when I say this but I always imagine that as I got older my range would get smaller but the opposite is true my range is actually getting wider mm. well I noticed on on nemesis uh, I think it's this song where you where you have a really low bit at the end uh, and uh, at the beginning sorry which was really striking is that low bit part of the new the area new you're talking about exploration um, yeah I mean low low is low is actually for me just as fun as high like how low can I get I could get that low but yeah. uh, I just like the warmth it's almost like these vocal cords are like a paintbrush you know so yeah. sometimes it's velvety and and cluttered almost and sometimes it's just really crackly and vulnerable and it's it's like um it's like a paintbrush. Are you singing about uh, psychedelics on, at the beginning of that song? Are you talking about tripping or, 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 or is it? Or, yeah. <laughs> Let the record show there's a wink happening with this. <laughs> <laughs> Parentheses. Wink, wink, wink. I don't know what you're talking about. No. Uh, yes. I'm, I've, I've experimented with a lot of portals, uh, portals to find God. And, um, some of them are temporary and, and not long-term plans, and, and, but still open up the window, you know? And then ultimately long-term, it's, it's not a panacea for long-term, but I am a curious girl. So most things I would experiment with, there are certain, certain things that I would never experiment with, but... Fair enough. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of creative people who've opened genuine doors with psychedelics. Yeah, you know, you know what? I have a lot of friends who, that was actually a huge turning, like an ego obliterating, obliterating experience was really powerful for them. Um, for me, I'm a little bit of an anxious bird. So, um, you know, there, there's so much information in here all the time and all of it is ego obliterating, even when I'm not medicated in any way, even though medication isn't really the word to use, I guess, mm. spiritual medicine. But um, yeah, I don't really, I definitely don't need anything to help me go to those places. But, you know, 45 years old, I have no regrets about, <laughs> I haven't missed anything. I'm not riddled with the, uh, sadness about missing things <laughs> i was always too freaked out i just couldn't i just too scared <laughs> yeah, well, curious but scared yeah, i'm not falling over myself to do any of it again by the way <laughs> you know the reasons i drink i think that's a great example of kind of bracing honesty that is i think people really appreciate and it becomes really powerful yeah the, the addiction stuff too i just feel like there's so much um there's such a tendency to, to shame people and judge people who are reaching for the billions of whack-a-mole addictions that are out there in the world. But I see at the center of all of it, it's people, and m myself included, just seeking relief, you know, seeking relief from being dysregulated and chronic cortisol all the time. I mean, people, we, you know, we all, we all want that kind of attachment, embryonic hug. And I have this theory in the stages of development, what drugs speak to each, like, if, oh, that's smart. If a child wasn't um, supported in, in thinking that anything they envisioned could potentially be made manifest, then maybe they like cocaine. You know, um, if they're undertouched, attachment, no cozy, they're going to want all the opiate-like cozy, cozy things. All of which can be achieved in relationship. I have come to learn all of the um, effects of these neutral medications can be met outside of the use of them. But like we said a minute ago, it can be a real turning point for people. And then those of us who become really addicted, you know, it starts off as something that really helps and then eventually kills you dead. Mm. So, you know, there's incentive to, to not have it become the habit, but for those who have, who have a certain, you know, um, addiction of any kind, work addiction, sex addiction, alcohol, 
any kind of drugs. My heart just, I have a lot of empathy for, for me and them because not only are they struggling with seeking relief of some kind, but they're also struggling with the stigma of being judged and relegated. Yeah. So people like Gabor Mate and there's a handful of people that are really taking this beyond just how do we get them off the drugs, you know? Wow. It's interesting, Unising, uh, I've been working since I can remember, since I was si- single digits. And like, obviously that's true. But like, what drove you into show business as a kid? It, it doesn't seem like your parents were like stage parents. It seems like it came from you, but maybe I'm, I'm wrong. It was a combo. I think, I think what happens, one, speaking of stages of development, yeah. one of the stages of development is being mirrored, right? So, so for me, where I was mirrored was, oh, you have the capacity to be famous. So there were three or four things that people would just say to me all the time, like, wow. And then the 753 billion other things, like complete visibility. Hmm. So I don't think that's uncommon with those of us who, who play with fame as a young person. Like we, we think that somehow it's going to course correct for famous. But um, I think work addiction started really young. It's born from being in a position where I was the, the young parent, you know, I was the young adult, even though it was not age appropriate for me to be in that position of leadership or that position of influence or power, you know? So, so it started really young. A guy named Brian Robinson has been my work addiction. I think he's kind of the seminal voice. He's the, my work addiction mentor in terms of been working on it for at least 10 years. And it's, I'm in it. I'm in the recovery journey. So, but that really indicates that, you know, from, from as far back as I can remember, I've been in charge of something and, Mm. And yes, that made it so that archetypally being a CEO or a boss or a leader, it's all really fun. I, I'm happy to play those roles. But some of those roles were played a little early. <laughs> you know, I just remember all my friends were out playing and I just think and I was in the studio and working my ass off till four in the morning. And, um, you know, so it was just it was just really early to be doing all that. I had a record company when I was 10 because back in the day, they weren't signing, you know, today they'll sign you if you're an embryo. Sign here! (laughs) Reach up your mother. But now they, you know, now they're signing really young people. But back when I was 10 or 11, they wouldn't come near me with a 10-foot pole in terms of any kind of contractual anything. So I just started my own record company because I wanted to put songs out. Totally. And all the old stuff is now like much more easily accessible than it was before the internet. So it's like something like too hot is now like you can just like watch it in two seconds. And there's a couple things like, first of all, I know like artists of a different generation who had to reinvent themselves have found it like much harder in the age of the internet because it's like, it's right there. It's always following you. And yeah, I think we were lucky whether famous or not in the nineties that our past didn't follow us quite so closely. We could divorce ourselves from it just by moving countries or or towns or whatever. A and, and B, I was just curious, like if you listen to a song like that now, which we probably don't like, what do you, what do you think of it? Like, I think it's fun as hell, but, but I I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I think for me, I've always been multitudinously drawn to different genres. So we just finished a video for Smiling. I'm going to see if maybe Devorah can get it to you. It'll be done. In oh, nice. A lot of dancing and movement. I've always oh, wow. since I was six. I've been, a you know, I consider myself a writer and a dancer, you know. <laughs> so um, <laughs> a couple of other things too. But <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, for me, the genre, the genrefulness was a bummer because I wanted to, I wanted to have a loop and an electric guitar and dance and rock that chorus and 
heaven forbid, not rhyme. And, you know, like I wanted to squish them all together. And I was collaborating with people who understandably had a very, very clear cut sense of like, no, you're either this or you're this, pick one, you know, and that's something I've heard so many times throughout my life, you know, the, the pick a lane, because I have there's so many parts that, you know, if someone says, hey, you want to throw a little jazz part here? I'm like, yeah, I do. You know, <laughs> you want to throw like a huge drum solo at the end? Yes. You know, so, so I just love all kinds of, <laughs> but at 16 or 17, I was working with people who had a really beautiful agenda, really. They, they made great music and I, and I, that's what I was singing. And to be honest, I was nowhere near ready to be singing autobiographically at 15 or too scary is jumping uh, no segue whatsoever but it, just smiling reminded me is that i mean to me the only interpretation i could have of that song is it's just straight up about recovery from addiction it, you sing about hitting bottom etc cetera, etc cetera. is it, am i misinterpreting yeah and it's, it's a lot of it is about you know the fight flight freeze so so again I, i'm going to break down all the drugs and everything that, <laughs> that goes straight into those i'm a category you know creature but um so yes yeah, smiling so it's I've seen my mom cry three times in my life. Mm. And one of the times was when I played that song for her. And it's really, it's for her and I and all of us who are just kind of holding it together, very presentationally going, yeah, all is well, I'm fine. And my tendency is, so it's fight, flight, freeze, tend and befriend, which is like people pleasing. Yeah. And, uh, and collapse. So for me, my number one is always, let's, can we all get along? You know, that's where I start. And then if that doesn't work out, I go into fight. I think, and I think that's obvious in my music, but um, the smiling one is about, you know, we live in, we have lived, maybe not so much anymore, but we've lived in a world that really only accepted a very shallow amount of emotionality, you know, so when I was little, I couldn't be angry, I couldn't be sad, um, definitely couldn't be, um, I definitely couldn't be afraid, so those were the three that I was not allowed, and you can imagine that those three were cooking all the time, you know. So for me, smiling is about that, like whether it's about opiates as part of the Jagged Little Pill musical or whether it's about, you know, alcohol or work addiction or sex addiction or love addiction or even if it's just straight Stepford smiling when when the shit's hitting the fan. That's what that song is for me. Has it been gratifying? It's probably the wrong word, but rather than put a reaction, what has been your reaction as someone who was ahead of their time in expressing female rage to seeing people talking about this stuff, women coming out with their stories, the Me Too era, uh, uh, just a very different time. Given that you've been singing about it forever and talking about it forever, how do, how do you react to that, to that change of culture? The greatest. You know, it's just less and less and less and less lonely the more we collectively become more and more vulnerable with each other. And at the end of the day, it's really, if we're going to be vulnerable, to, to do it with someone who's a, a great listener and non-judgmental and being discerning, you know, because when I was at a certain point, I was like, okay, I'm going to risk with people. And I was just risking, emotionally risking with people that weren't really up for the task, mm. the task of receptivity with that non-judgmental receptivity. So, so now when I hear anybody, you know, the thing that killed me the other day was I was reading Dave Eggers' New York Times piece. Have you read Oh yeah, that was great. Yeah. great. And then I was just, I went down the rabbit hole of Dave and, and then the style that some of his books were, you know, the genre and book, it was called New Sincerity. Right. I'm like, what the fuck is New Sincerity? <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay. So it's starting to make sense to me now. Like, oh, I guess this is a thing now. And I don't yeah. think because of me. I just mean because of our culture. You know, like, I didn't know that sincerity was new. <laughs> I just was like, right. oh, 
I guess it's a style now, I guess is what I'm saying. Not for you. It's not new for you. Uh, it's not new. I'm, I was a little confused. Yeah. But I love it because it's, I don't know, I just, I love hearing, it's the difference between me listening to a song and not listening to a song. I can't really, if it's just for a presentation, I can probably dance to it. But if it's, I'm a lyric person, I like melodies and lyrics and I want to go right into your world. So. I know you're writing a book. First of all, how is that going? And second of all, is that going to be kind of a name naming situation? I know you have things to share. Is that, is this, is this when it all kind of hits the fan? Well, I have written 1300 pages. Oh my God. In it, I've used every name, but I'm not going to name names because I mean, maybe I will if, if I get some permissions here and there, but again, not unlike you want to know what I'm writing about is not for some revenge filled outcome. <laughs> it's, it's so that I can feel expressed. And the truth of the matter is I've, the irony of all for me is that I don't care about my story and I've, mm. I've, I've, I've hired people to help me care because <laughs> I don't. And maybe that's a Canadian thing. Maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's invisibility issues, but I, I literally don't care about my story. It's why I get excited when I hear other people tell me their story. Cause I'm like, ah, I get a break from myself. But you know, writing for me is taking it 10 steps farther. So if there's something I can write in a three minute period that remains a little obtuse, Writing about it prose and just clickety-clackety, as you probably know more than anybody, it's a whole different thing. Like, details, details, you know. So I can get into more of the details, but my intention is not to just do a tell-all that ruins 25 people's lives in one minute. So mm. my goal. You were supposed to tour with Liz Fair, and there's a lot of similarities between you and Liz. And, and at the same time, I think part of her, just talking to her and reading her book, I think part of her wishes that she had had some part of her career that was more of like an Alanis type career, you know, a, a larger scale success. Do you ever wish you had more of a Liz Fair type career, indie, not pop, just less pressure kind of thing or, or not at all? I'm just curious. That's a great question. And I've never really thought of it because it would require me not to be me. <laughs> yeah. Parallel universe. I have a, a, a swallowable amount of fame. Right. Yeah, it's a little too late. It was too late. Like at 22, I was like, oh, okay, you can't really put all this back in a box. But well, this is the classic 90s thing of trying to put it back in the box. Everyone, Pearl Jam, everybody wanted to try to put it back in the box. And yeah. there just was no, you couldn't, couldn't yeah. do it. Zeitgeist is zeitgeist, you know? <laughs> it's like, and then after a while, I mean, it did, it did chill. Could be, sure. For a moment, I naively, because I was so ignorant about this trajectory of fame, I just thought, oh my God, does it stay like this forever? I want out, you know? But of course it changes, which is which was lovely. I could start to breathe again. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and that was today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. We should be back next week on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcast. If you happen to leave us a nice review on iTunes, that is always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that 
Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord! We get it! They have chemistry! Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.